Welcome to Your Career Podcast, the podcast that helps to ensure your career success. To start getting on track with your career, download my free career goals calendar from thecareersacademy.online. My goals calendar includes a smart goals template and a weekly tasks sheet that will ensure step-by-step you get closer to reaching your career goals. So download my goals calendar today at thecareersacademy.online. Now on with the show. My expertise and my passion is evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. That is why we are what we are and think the way we think, do things we do based on where we've come from. And that's my specialty and I'm obsessed with that. But it's not a great conference topic. So I talk about how to apply those things in your life. The face-to-face with people, what can you look for, do, say, and how can you behave and get information to tell you what to do next. Welcome to Jane Jackson Careers, a podcast that takes your career to the next level. Here's your host, Jane Jackson, author of Amazon Careers bestseller, Navigating Career Crossroads. Well, hello, and you know what? One of the most exciting things about hosting your own podcast is that you get to interview fascinating people who may have been your idols for many, many years. And this is what's happened for this episode, because I have Alan Pease himself, Mr. Body Language, on the show. Now, for those of you who don't know, Alan with co-author Barbara Pease as one of the world's most successful non-fiction authors, writing 18 bestsellers, including 10 number one bestsellers, such as The Definitive Book of Body Language and Why Men Don't Listen and Women Can't Read Maps. Well, do you think that's true? Well, this is one of the things that we discuss during this podcast interview. Now, Alan's books have been translated into 54 languages and have sold over 27 million copies. His television series and number one box office movie was watched by over 100 million viewers. Now, not only that, but Alan is a professor at Moscow State Technical University and ULIM International University, and he's a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts in the UK and has been inducted into the National Speakers Association Hall of Fame. If you haven't watched Alan Pease speaking, you must do so. Now, let me introduce this amazing gentleman. And so let's welcome Mr. Body Language, Alan Pease, to the show. Welcome, Alan. Jane, great to be here. Nice to see you again. I could listen to you all night. <laughs> well, I'm, I've been looking forward to having you on my podcast for so long because, as you can see in my hot little hands, I have oh, this book from, gosh, 1985, and it's wow. been like a Bible to me. It's wonderful. I love it so much. And so now being able to interview on the podcast, this is a very exciting moment for me, Alan. Well, I wrote, I wrote that original book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I put pen to paper in 1976 at Church Point in Sydney. Really? And uh, it came out in 1978. So the original book was 156 pages, which was like cutting edge technology back in the 70s. Nobody had ever seen or heard of anything like it. And uh, the latest version of that, the definitive book, is 480 pages. And it's not that we've, dis- not that we've discovered more gestures, it's just that we have more science of understanding the history and the origin of some of these things. Yeah, the, the thing is, is, I mean, with body language, it's such a huge topic yeah. and there's so much to talk about and I've got so many questions I want to ask you. Let's do it. Start yeah. us off, to start us off, uh, because I always do this, Alan, is I'd like to find out what were your career aspirations in the early days when you were a little boy? Well, for me, it started back in the 1950s. My father was the Southwest Victorian insurance agent for Eagle Star Insurance Company. And we lived in the bush, uh, our country town. The woman had 820 people lived there. That was total population. And uh, the sign stayed up for 30 years, 820 people popu- population. And the standing joke was the reason it never changed every time a baby was born, a man left town. And, and <laughs> he would go here <laughs> at night on the weekends calling on people collecting premiums because that's back in the 50s what they did. They did there's no checks on credit cards. So they collect the premiums by hand and that's how they prospected for new business. 
So through electoral rolls, they knew who lived in the houses, who lived next door. And it was a lot of night work and weekends. So they could meet the neighbours, meet the brothers and sisters, the husbands, the wives, the family. That's how they prospected. And he would take me with him because he was a handsome young guy collecting, mostly from women. So it's pretty hard to get in and present. But when you got a kid with you, they always asked you to come in. And, and if they didn't invite him in, uh, he'd say things like, could Alan have a glass of water, please? Could Alan use your toilet? So I'd spend two or three nights a week you know, drinking water and being in people's toilets all over southwest Victoria. But the great thing about that, I got to sit around with my dad and watch him present my presentations on insurance. And he'd tell me in advance things like, look, if the premium's too much, uh, you might see they might widen their eyes or sit back a bit, maybe cross their arms. He said, I want you to watch out for this, Alan, and give me a wink of your suit. So he was trying to keep me entertained. And at night times, he'd listen to these large 45 and 78 RPM records of people like Dale Carnegie and Alma Letterman and Earl Nightingale, with the original motivationalist of the 40s and the 50s. So I grew up in the environment of listening to the Dale Carnegie, how to get your life together, uh, type information. So I, I thought as a kid that was normal. I thought everybody did that. Turns out they didn't. And so as, as a 12-year-old, I got a job knocking on doors selling pots and pans because that's what you did back in those days and you could get a job selling, which is a bit more difficult now. And so right through my whole career at school, I always had a job knocking on doors selling something and I was the king of selling. And that's how my career started. And so cause my dad said to me in the early stage, he said, you're either going to be a doctor or you're going to be a salesman because, you know, they're both two of the highest paid people. And so I said, can I do both? He said, well, yeah, it's a hard job to do both, but yeah, you can do both. And uh, I tell you, being a salesman was much more fun than, than studying, even though my, my expertise and my passion is evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. That is why we are what we are and think the way we think, do things we do based on where we've come from. That, that's my specialty, and, and I'm obsessed with that. But it's not a great conference topic. So I talk about how to apply those things in your life. The face-to-face with people, what can you look for, do, say, and how can you behave and get information to tell you what to do next. So my career aspirations, I mean, I've never really had a job, Jane. This is pretty much it. Uh, I'm 70 next year, and, and this is all I've ever done is research human behaviour, and I've written 18 books about it. And uh, that's pretty much what my whole life has been. And my dad taught me, and I'm and he knew this because he listened to Dale Carnegie on the records, that he always taught me, Alan, you can do anything in life. So I grew up not believing that there's nothing I couldn't do because I believed I could because he told me that and I heard it on the records. And, and that was a really big thing for me because uh, it made me it made me able to have, the, have the, the courage to go and tackle things that maybe normally you mightn't have tackled. And so I've got some pretty remarkable results in my life, but that stems right back to the time when I was a kid mm. where... My dad and, and Earl Nightingale and Dale Carnegie uh, taught me that you could do anything. And the reality is you can do anything, despite what your background was, but the only thing that's likely to stop you is you. I absolutely agree. And, you know, in your early formative years, having someone who believes in you so much and tells you you can do what you put your, your mind to, yeah. it, it's a powerful thing, especially from a very young age. And listening to Dale Carnegie, grow, how many people listen to Dale Carnegie growing up? That's amazing because it, that would instill yeah. so much confidence in you and understanding of human behavior as well. And, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of your YouTube videos, Alan, and uh, also, you know, listened to you know a lot of interviews that you've had. And You're like a stalker. <laughs> I've got your book from 1980. Oh, you can stalk me, Jane. I'm happy with being stalked. <laughs> I need all the stalkers I can get at this age. <laughs> From having read your book back in 1985 and being so um, influenced by this, because, you know, I, I like to get up on stage and speak as well. And when I talk about some of your your uh, findings and your learnings and your advice as well, people love it because it, it makes so much sense. And yeah. body language is, it, it's not an exact science, but I'm going to ask you about body language in a little while, okay, because okay. you are Mr. Body Language. But so you you were very successful in a sales career because you were able to read people's body language and when they were about to say yes or about to say no or come up with an objection and as a result now I've got some information here as a result you were one of you were the youngest person ever to sell over a million dollars of life insurance yes at the age of 21 amazing so sales is is something that you excel at and how much do you think of sales is being able to read the other person's body language? Well, body language makes up 60 to 80% of all the impact you're making in a face-to-face situation. And even if you're on the screen like we are right now, it's 
actually more than 60 to 80% because the difference with a screen, like a Skype screen as we've got here, or a Zoom screen, is you can actually stare at the person, which you can't do in real life. You can look at every part of their face. You can look at their lips. You can look at and face-to-face you, face, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And socially not acceptable. And also face-to-face, there are other things happening around you that are distracting, so you miss a lot of important clues. But with, with a, a telecast like this, a body language is very, very powerful because we're actually looking for things that you wouldn't be able to do practically in a face-to-face situation in real life. So 60 to 80% of all impact is non-verbal. And, and if you're good at doing that, and that is you're reading a person's emotions because all body language is in simple terms is an outward reflection of your emotional conditions. So whatever emotion you're feeling, happy, sad, angry, uh, confident, depressed, frightened, whatever emotion it is, is likely to be revealed in gestures, movements and expressions. So when you're reading body language, what you're actually doing is reading a person's emotional state. You then match it up with what they're saying in the circumstances and context under which it's all happening. That allows you to work out when you're good at this, what could be going through their head. And many people, particularly women more than men, uh, can do this instinctively. And brain scans show the part of the brain that allows you to do that because it seems to be for the protection of babies, that if you as a woman couldn't look at babies that can't speak and have no language and determine quickly is it hungry, frightened, tired, injured or in pain, if you couldn't do that, it's detrimental for survival. So it appears pretty clearly to be a survival instinct that your foremothers have had, that you've got and that your daughters will have. And also you can do it not only with babies, you can do it with other people and animals, which makes sense. If you think historically, uh, a woman hiding in a cave with a handful of kids and suddenly there's a stranger approaching. Now, she needed to be able to work out when that stranger's in the distance, will they be friendly or aggressive? And the only way they could do that was by behaviour, the way the person moved, body language, because mostly there wasn't any language anyway, only sounds and grunting sounds back under the original human beings. And so if she couldn't do that, it would be detrimental for survival. And as a result of it, women today innately have that ability, brain scans in the head to be able to look at people and animals and decide whether they're going to be aggressive or friendly. And I learned this at 18. I was on a date with a girl one night and I'm waiting for her to get ready and I'm playing, I'm playing with her dog. And she came out and she said to me, and I'll never forget it, she said, you just embarrassed my dog. And I thought, how the hell do you embarrass a dog? And talking to women, women say, yeah, dog's got emotion. Women can see, you can see an embarrassed dog or an upset dog. To me, it's just, just a dog. What did you do, Alan? <laughs> oh, geez, I wish I could read her emotions as well as you read the dog. <laughs> so, so, so as a result of that, you know, women are far better readers non-verbally of, than, than their male counterparts, which is the lesson we always teach men. One of the first ones is if you're doing business with women or doing anything with women, you don't lie to her to her face because your chances of getting away with that are not really good. So you better off going to ring her on the phone or turn the lights off or send an SMS. <laughs> You know, that is so, so true. It's really funny. I, I always know when my husband's telling me a porky pie. Yeah, your lips are moving, yeah. <laughs> because it's, it, something happens to his face. It's so strange. You know, I, I know because his eyes go a bit funny and then his upper lip gets a little longer. <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing. When we, we ask women to articulate you know, why they think he's lying. Most women, we kind of try to describe it like you did then, but they're not clearly articulating. Yes, I'm seeing this. I'm seeing pupil constriction. I'm seeing changes of the cheek. I'm seeing a movement of the earlobes. They actually can't articulate it, but their brain is picking up decoding and saying, hang on a minute, uh, the expressions here aren't matching what I'm hearing, and that's why he gets suspicious when you'd see that. So as I said to men, you know, don't lie to women's face. You send them an SMS, it's much safer. So it's not so much that women are more intuitive, it's just that they observe slight changes in someone's demeanour. Yeah, so one, one of the things, I wrote a book with Barbara called Why Men Lie and Women Cry, and we studied the whole aspect of lying. And when you ask men and women who lies most, men or women, what would you think? Who, who lies the most, men or women? What do you think? I don't really know. I don't think, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking like saying something nice so that someone feels better, like it's a little white lie. A woman's lie, yeah. Men do more of that? I'm not sure. I think men men might be more direct in the way they deliver the message, perhaps. Well, what we discovered was that overall women believe that men tell more direct lies or more concealing lies than women do. And what, what we found in real life, that men and women lie about the same amount. Now, we lie about different things. Uh, women will lie to protect a relationship. Like uh, your girlfriend says, how do you like my hairstyle? And you hate it. 
So rather than saying, I hope you say, oh, it really suits your face, it looks good, and the colour's good. So that's a, the reality is you just lied to her. So women will lie to protect a relationship, whereas men will lie to enhance themselves. Like they lie about, uh, about their position in the company, the size of their car, their salary, uh, their potential, and what they, and they brag about all the great things they did when they were young, which they exaggerated on. So men lie to enhance themselves, women lie to protect a relationship. But overall, men and women lie roughly about the same. Now, the difference is, because women's brains are more perceptive to picking up, women pick it up more often, so it gives the illusion that men appear to be lying more. In fact, they're not they're getting caught more. Ah, men just aren't observant enough. Is that is that a wide-sweeping statement? Well, it is. If you look historically at the evolution of, of males, I mean, my male ancestors spent their life out there walking across the horizon looking for something moving, and their prime task was to hit it accurately with a rock or a spear. That's all they had to do. They didn't have to come back home and discuss the relationship. That was not, never part of the deal. They just had to hit lunch and bring it home full stop, whereas women's evolution is not only reading babies, what condition they're in, but also looking at their environment and deciding from signals they can see from animals and people what's going on with these people or these animals. And so as a result, we're the beneficiaries or the victims, depending how you look at it, today of women's ability to be able to read what's going on and men's ability just to generally miss it, but to reverse park their car much better than she can. Mm-hmm. Very, very true. <laughs> Actually, it's really interesting that the, the difference between men and women <clears throat> is the way that we communicate as well. But mm-hmm. you know, the, there's, there's so much when it comes to, to body language, and it's not just male versus female communication. There's also the cross-cultural differences too. And I know you're a master at this because you actually trained Vladimir Putin um, in Russia. I mean, when, when there was the fall of communism, I don't know how you did it, but somehow you did it. I don't know <laughs> Amazing. So, so, so how, how does, you know... Uh, an Aussie, okay, an Aussie body language expert, end up training Vladimir Putin. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people say when they, I wrote this in the book, the answer about how this whole thing happened, and a lot of people say with things that have happened, uh, like like the Putin story, they say, well, that was very lucky. And in fact, if you look at people who are successful at anything, most. The majority of people say, oh, you had luck. Now, the bottom line is I, I don't have any time for luck. I don't think it really is anything happens. Luck is normally lots of preparation, meeting opportunity, as they say. Uh, and, in fact, you know, the harder the more organised and the more disciplined, the more goals, the luckier I seem to get. That's pretty much how it works. So in terms of setting goals for the future, one of the things I advise people don't allow for luck of any sort. Now, if you do happen to get a lucky break, as you might call it, well, that's a bonus, but it shouldn't be part of your plan at all. Uh, I decided... When, when communism fell, uh, we knew that there was around 300 Russian-speaking people in the USSR, and even though uh, 70% of those lived in poverty, half of those didn't have running water and food, uh, 20% of those or more were millionaires. That's 60 million people. So that becomes a big market. Like Australia's got 25 million people. We don't have 60 million millionaires here. Uh, now, today, it would be in more than that. And Russia has over 400 billionaires that we know of. And, I mean, who's got that? Not many. But So it's a big market. So Barbara and I decided we are going to go to Russian-speaking countries, to the Formula, U, Formula USSR, which was breaking up into different countries, and we'll become consultants, experts, and that will be one of our major markets because most people have never been there because of the Iron Curtain. And... Uh, we figured we could get in there, make an impact and have it captured. So we set out to capture that market. And uh, six weeks after communism fell, uh, we travelled to Russia and because of lucky incidents that had happened, they weren't lucky. What we, we decided 11 years before Russia, before Russia became Russia, when it was US, we decided we're going to do this. We're going to go to seminars in Russia. And I can remember people saying, and what people I consider were smart people, how are you going to do that, Alan? You, uh, it's the... It's communist. Uh, they've got the Iron Curtain. You can't get in there as a Westerner. If you do, they're going to steal your kidneys. You'll wake up in a bath full of ice and, and the KGB. And I said, well, you know, I've, I've seen James Bond in from Russia with Love and Goldfinger, and it all looked pretty exciting to me. I thought, this looks like an adventure we could go on. Oh, now, how are you going to do it? Now, this is the important point that I suppose we should tackle right here. When you decide you're going to do something, you should not ever think about how you're going to do it. The minute you think about how, it's over. It's finished because if, if you knew how, you'd already would have done it. And it's the excitement of not knowing how is what makes a new goal exciting. So decide what you're going to do, what you're going to have, what you're going to become. 
Do not think about how. Now, we're in a society, Jane, we're conditioned to think about, oh, how would we do this? How would we raise the money? How would I get become chief executive? How would I start my own business? How would I find the ideal partner in life? Because we think about how, nothing happens. So you don't think about how. Just think about what you want. That I'm going to go to Russia. When I was 19 years of age living in housing permissions, kid, as a young fella, I decided to be a millionaire at 30. And I can remember people in my little country town saying, how are you going to do that? Because we didn't have any millionaires that we knew of down there. Now, how are you going to do that? I, said, I don't know, but this is what I'm going to do. Because I saw on TV, if you're a millionaire, uh, Richard Bardo and Jane Fonda would be interested in you. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be a millionaire. <laughs> I, I didn't even know what that looked like. All I knew is if we did one of those things, these gorgeous women could be interested in me. That was my motivation. That was your motivation. I see. That's right. Yeah. So, so don't think about how you're going to do something. If you say to yourself, well, how will I get the money? How will I get... The minute you find yourself doing that, you lose motivation within 48 hours and it's over. Just decide what you're going to do, which in fact is a scary thing, but that I'm going to become a millionaire or whatever your goal might be. I'm going to become or have or go to. And, and people say, but how? I say, I don't know, but this is what I'll do. And if people keep insisting, yeah, but Jane, how, how? Stop telling them. Mm. The, the, and the worst offenders, of course, are telling you how, asking you how, are family members, the people you reckon support you, the ones you try to talk you out of it. But how will you do this? We, have a, we run weekends at, at our property here in the Gold Coast, and the Sunshine Coast, and we do three or four of these a year. And some of the cases out of the how and the what are dramatically. We had one woman who worked for a large bank in her early 40s. She worked there since she was 18. A senior management position, had a car, all the benefits, two sons who had left to go to university, they weren't coming back. Uh, she was divorced, she was on her own for about six years, and very conservative woman. She wrote on this list, we teach people how to list things, how to get it out of your head on the paper. And she listed that, uh, that she wanted to do something to contribute to disabled and kids who are AIDS victims in Zimbabwe because she's seen it on TV in a special. And these ads kept saying, send 50 bucks and you can feed a kid who's starving in Zimbabwe who's dying, his parents are dead from AIDS. Because in, in Zimbabwe, more than 50% of all children uh, are orphans because AIDS has decimated the, the adult population. So she said she had this urge to want to do something about this and she didn't know what to do or how to do it. She kept thinking about how to do it. So we got rid of the how and she decided that she would do it. Now, today, she's living in a tent in Ethiopia, Jane, on the ground with Medicines on Frontier doing psychological restoration for the girls who were kidnapped as sex slaves by Bokharan. And there's no real money involved in getting paid. They give her basic food. And she said to us in an email recently, it's the greatest period of entitlement. She cannot believe she's gone from the bank. Now, you can imagine when she decided that she was going to do this, she was scared to help. And I said, look, tell six strangers in the street what you're going to do. And she did. And most of them said, wow, go for it. One of them volunteered information. What a wonderful success story for her. Well, it's deciding what, not how. And that, that's, that, that is really yeah. an important message. Just decide what you're going to do. Mm. But don't, if you catch yourself saying, but how, you've got to say to yourself, stop. Oh. And I do that occasionally. I get by my son, but how? And I go, stop. Oh. I actually call, I called out in the shopping centre three months, stop. People go, this guy lost <laughs> So true because but because there's always a way. Once you know what you want, then you will find the way to You'll do it. The how. The how will appear. Yeah, and every street corner will have a Lexus on it. <laughs> so true. And this is how you got into Russia. And so it, it must have been so interesting when you were there uh, talking about body language and the nuances between how Russians would communicate with Americans, with Chinese, with Indians, with Europeans. And so, so actually this leads very nicely into the differences in body language when it comes to cross-cultural communication. Um, for example, you, you know, like between Russia and America, you know, Traditionally, you know, there have always been so many uh, uh, communication challenges. What, what are the main differences between, say, a Russian or European communication and American communication? Not much, just a couple of guns. <laughs> <laughs> well, the interesting thing is that it is also generationally determined. Mm. So if you look at older generations of Russians, uh, and to a lesser extent, Chinese, Asians in general. Uh, the biggest difference between body language today and any other culture is between the Arab world and the Western the European world because the Arab world still maintains some gestures, behaviours that aren't seen outside the Middle East. And, and if you look at older generations versus younger generations, I, I made a short film about kids under the age of 10 
and I did it in 10 different countries, in Eastern Europe and in, in, uh, in Asia, and I also filmed their grandparents. And they, I just filmed them interacting, and the film was put together with the sound off, and you had to guess where are they from. And we filmed it such a way you couldn't see any buildings or maybe any clothing. It was a giveaway. And for kids under the age of 10, nobody could pick what country they're from because they all behave with the same body language. And the reason for that is they all watch American television, American movies, and video games that are all made in America that all have Western and Americanized behaviors. So as a result of that, Russian kids are going, hasta la vista, baby, which is practice Spanish. <laughs> they're all using gestures, behaving, wearing baseball hats backwards in something out of Siberia a lot. Kids wear baseball bats hats backwards in Siberia, Jane. I mean, that's completely ridiculous. They see it on TV, they it on the video, but their grandparents don't. So their grandparents, uh, you can see differences in their behaviour. But what's happening is that the entire world is becoming westernised or Americanized because of Hollywood, Hollywood with the videos and the video games. So younger kids, if you film them all, which we did, you really can't tell where they're from unless they're from the Middle East because in the Middle East, the Watching American television is fairly restricted by parents and by culture in many of those countries. So they grow up looking at basic body language signals. But if you go back to some of the things that are quite funny, like this gesture here, which you, know, you read that as okay and most people now would read that as okay. Going back into the 70s when I wrote the original body language, this had 17 meanings. Now it's got five. Mm. 17, now it's only got five. It meant uh, okay in Western countries. Uh, in places like France, it meant zero because they count one. Two, three, four, five. So zero, one, two, three, four, five. Now for us, that's good. For French, that's number one. Oh. So if a French guy says, it, it could be saying, no, it might be meaning okay if he's been exposed to West. Uh, now if you say to, if, if a Frenchman says, I want two drinks, please, he does that. Whereas a Westernised person would use two fingers that way up there. British, they go that way because that means up yours and still for older generation. So, so the French go one, two. So we did a very simple experiment on this for cross-cultural differences. By going into British hotels, you say to the bartender, we'd like some beers, please. So how many would you like? We say, this many. Now, his brain wouldn't recognise the one, so he'd give you two. You go to a French pub and you say, this many, you get three. Oh. Because they see the thumb as number one. Without realising it, they pick it up. So... That gesture meant zero in France. In Japan, it meant then and still does money. It means coins. So if someone goes to, to the um, airport for the cha- money change, they say, like, that means I want some coins shapes. But in places like uh, northern Greece and Turkey, this is a sexual insult. It means that you're uh, the A word. You're a real regular. <laughs> so you go to Greece and say, how do you like Greek people? Oh, I love Greek people. You just said all the revanche of you know. <laughs> you know, you know, you, you're, the examples that you're giving me are fantastic for video. I'm going to put in my show notes pictures of the different hand was, signals yeah. for the people who are listening on the podcast. People are missing the 60 to 8 percent, but 80 percent medium. But the thing is, is I mean, all those different gestures. It really is quite amazing because you can be insulting someone without even realizing that you're doing. Well, that's what, yes, well, that's what happens. That Westerners and Europeans will go to some countries like in Turkey. It's becoming with younger generations, it's not the case anymore because uh, that okay gesture I'm showing now with the thumb pressing against the index finger is likely to be okay to younger Turkish kids mm-hmm. as, and Middle Eastern kids similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at the, if you do it to their grandparents, you've just probably just insulted them. It's a bit like you know the, the, the thumb thumb up pressing forward. Yeah, uh, you'd probably read that as good or okay. And that's now the most used meaning in the world. But in northern Greece and Turkey, it's an up your signal. Oh, and, I yeah, realise that. It's very rude. Like, if you drive around in Athens, which is pretty, a pretty mind-threatening thing, where people are cutting each other off in the traffic, every now and again you'll see someone stick their hand out the window and show what appears to be the number five. They just hold their hand up and it looks like number five. Now, that's a, a very insulting gesture called the mutza, which goes back to the Roman era when prisoners were being dragged through the street to be executed or tried, and there were open sewers, so people would put their hands in the open sewers, scoop up all the gunk, and they'd push it in their face with open hand. And so it means a handful of crap in your face is literally what it means. And uh, modern Greeks, including young Greeks, still use that. They generally don't know its history. It's all right. They just know rather than give a middle finger up, which is what the Americans will do, they'll give you five, number five. Uh, Now, there's an even more insulting gesture that 
if you were so low, you, you're not even entitled to a handful of crap in your face. We'll just give you a little tiny bit on the end of my thumb. So they put a little bit on the end of the thumb and they push the thumb forward towards you. There's a little bit of crap on your nose. You're so low, that's all you're entitled to. Now, for you, that means good and five means five. So someone in the Greece says, meet me at five, good to see you with the thumb up. They just told you <laughs> crap in your face up, you always drop dead. <laughs> now, the golden rule is whenever you go to any other country, and most people don't do this to avoid getting into trouble. Ask your host to show you, to physically demonstrate, how do you tell people to go and drop dead around here? How do you tell them up yours? Show me the gestures and I'll show you things. And sometimes in places like Greece and Turkey and the Middle East and Brazil, you'll be shocked and horrified what it means up yours. And you've been doing it all your life and you think you're going really, really well. And George Bush suffered from this when he got his first his first international job was to go to Brazil when he got become the president. Now, George W. Bush, when he became president, he had to get a passport. He never had a passport. He'd never been outside America. He thought the whole world was like Texas. <laughs> so he gets a passport. He goes to Brazil and he got off the plane. He stood there and thousands of people had turned up to the airport to see the new president. And they were all cheering and waving. And so he held his fingers up and he did a gesture I'm using now, which uh, I'm using my, I've got my hand closed with my little finger up and my index finger up. Does that mean anything to you? Um, it means okay. That, where does that mean okay? So you're in trouble if you show that for okay. I don't know, isn't it? I'm, a lot of rappers tend to use that sort of signal. Oh, no, I, that way. That's right. Okay. You're, yeah, you're thinking of the thumb up and the little finger, which yes, is yes, hang, hang, hang right. loose baby. Yeah. Now, I've got the little finger up and, and this ah, is... What does that mean? Well, in places like Brazil... Uh, it's the horns of the devil. It's an evil sign. Oh. It, means, uh, you, you, you wouldn't trust that person. In Italy, it means everybody's having sex with your wife. It's really bad. <laughs> it's illegal technically to show that gesture in Italy. So, but in, in Texas, it's the sign of the Texas long or football team. Oh, and whenever really? they, yeah, everybody dances around with this, so George Bush goes to Brazil where it means sign of evil up yours, and he gets out and the, the Longhorns had won that morning before he put the plane. So here he's with thousands of of Brazilians all cheering and waving, and he holds up and starts dancing with two <laughs> horns. And so they started to whistle. Oh, now, my goodness. Now, now, whistling in Western countries, someone's whistling in a football match, it means that we're all excited. But when they're whistling in places like Brazil or Europe, it means we don't like it up yours. So they whistled him. He thought they loved me. So now he's dancing with these two up yours signals, and everyone's whistling and putting their thumb down. <laughs> Oh, you know what? It just goes to show that it's very important to know what you're doing when you're going across cultures. Because ask your host, ask your host to show you how would you tell me to get stuck and get yeah. them to show you, and you'll be somewhat shocked at what, what it means. Yeah, and then you can really be careful, and you can only use it when appropriate. <laughs> That would have been absolutely hilarious. I'm going to go and dig out a video of that just so that I can see it because, because you must be cross-cultural um, nuances are so important, especially when doing business now. And I, I think that we all have to read all of your books because there are 18 books that you've read and 10 of them are number one bestsellers. And I can see why, because there's so much that we can learn. You know, what's changed with cultural gestures now, are starting to disappear because, as I said, American television video games mm. are all becoming westernised, which has the upside of means if you're cross-culturally communicating, you're more likely to know what's going on. The downside, of course, is it means that cultural differences are disappearing in terms of body language. What still remains the same is eye contact, how long you can look for, the space, how far away you can stand, and frequency of touch. Those things still stubbornly remain. So in France, for example, uh, the touch in France is around five to six times more than the frequency that it is in Australia and more than ten times of what it is in Britain. So if you go to France, it's almost like everybody's grabbing you and handling it, same as it is in Italy. Mm. And if, you're, if you're not expecting that, you start thinking, oh, these creepy people are all over me like a rash. But in fact, they're showing you that they accept you because if they're not touching you in those places, then you're not being accepted. Mm, mm. Yes, so I, <laughs> yes, you always think, you know, why, why do Italians always want to touch you uh, so much? And I have to admit that I'm, I'm quite a huggy sort of person, even if I'm half English, but um, I, I don't know why. Why do I hug? I'm half English and I'm half Chinese, so I, I should be a little bit more circumspect and not touch people quite as much as I do. Well, well the key is to mirror. Whatever the touching frequency is with another person, regardless of culture, is to mirror that. So if, if, if you're a touching, huggy person, you start touching, hugging me, I'll return it. And if I return it, you'll say to yourself, I like this guy and he seems to like me. But if you were touching me and doing what you'd normally do, Jane, and I wasn't returning it, 
without consciously being weird, say to yourself, oh, I'm not really sure he quite likes me much at this point, doesn't agree with me. So you become more suspicious. So the key is to mirror the touch. So when you go to France and Italy, where they appear to be crawling all over you, if you're a Westerner, you, if you don't return that, they're going to say, she doesn't like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mirroring is very, very important. Is that, that's, that, that's something that I learned when I was going through your books as well. You know what's really interesting? <coughs> There's been such a shift now, and I'm thinking especially with millennials uh-huh. versus baby boomers. You know, I'm, I'm a baby boomer. Um, a bit, but with millennials now, communication has changed quite a lot, hasn't it, Alan? Because uh-huh. they're using emojis, they're, they're on the phone, they're texting, they're using WhatsApp, um, they're, they're, it's, it's Facebook, it's social media. And, and I've noticed now that so, so many of us, and, and I've started doing it too, is that if I'm doing a text message and it's going to be a joke and I'm worried that someone isn't going to take it the right way, then I put a little silly face emoji yes. there. Yes. Um, and it, I, I guess that's our way of overcoming the the, the non-visual communication because we text so mm. much now. Well, what women women tend to do that more than men. Men see that as a bit, a bit childish, a bit silly. And the problem that you've got is that when you're texting, you're down to words only. There's no tone of voice to give meaning and there's no body language that shows how the person's feeling what their intent is. So by putting emojis in, emojis is just frozen faces of body language to show what your feelings at the time. And they're critical to put in any text because if if someone reads a line from you and you maybe you're cracking into a little joke or just being a bit humorous, if they don't know you all that well, if they have to decide are you being sarcastic or are you being humorous, they'll normally go for sarcastic. And so everybody listening to this or watching this has probably had a situation where they send a text or an SMS or an email to someone and you put a little funny line in or something that could go two ways in interpretation and people have got really upset with you or they've cut you off and you never knew what happened. Uh, whereas emojis will fix that. By putting an emoji, you can select the emotion that, or what you mean so people know whether they need to laugh or whether you're trying to have a crack at them. Mm, yeah, and, and I mean, I'm glad that there are emojis because it's so easy to misconstrue the written word because, yes. as you say, without tone of voice, it's so hard. So do you think millennials are losing the ability to, be yes. able to read body language when they're actually in front of someone, actually talking to them face-to-face? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the science shows clearly what's going on there. About five years ago, a, a series of brain scans was done with Gen Y's and Gen Ys are our kids, in fact. And what that showed then, five years ago, that the parts of the brain that are activated to read the emotions in a face, they have around 10% less in the brains of Gen Ys than their parents or their grandparents. Now, I haven't seen a study done with the millennials, but it would be even greater because you and I, for example, we're both babies. We grew up looking at people's faces, now, especially because I'm, I'm completely Western. You've got part Asian in you as well, so part Asian means you don't look as much. So chances are, depending on the culture you're most raised in, you might be looking away more often, which to me means that maybe you're not being completely honest because you're not re- reciprocating and mirroring me, which is culture difference. So as a result of looking at screens all day, it's pretty clear that Gen Ys and the millennials to a greater extent have lost the ability to know whether you are angry, upset, uh, like them, don't like them. They're less likely to be able to tell that than their parents or their grandparents. Now, as a result of this, uh, there's a whole conference business, and you would have seen this as well as a conference topic, of baby boomer bosses, how do you deal with your Gen Y and millennial staff? Because the Gen Ys, particularly baby boomers, are at each other's places because the Gen Ys, like the millennials, are likely to come to an appointment with a phone and put the phone on the desk. And a baby boomer going to start thinking, you're going to answer that you're going to watch that, which means do you think that's more important than the fact you were here with an interview with me? Because baby boomers want you to look at them and talk and answer and not be distracted by outside circumstances. And in any case, the Gen Ys and the millennials are less likely to know if you're upset with them, which means uh, they're likely to tread on your toes more often, which creates that tension between uh, Gen Ys and millennials and the, and the baby boomer bosses. Mm, yeah, yeah, that that difference, not just, you know, cross-cultural differences, but cross-generational differences in the workplace, yes. if you're not aware of, of how the others prefer to be communicated to, then, then there could be quite a lot of problems. How can we overcome that problem? Well, the simple thing is to go to, do, go to a course, and there's lots of online courses you can do, that will show you how to interact between baby boomers and Gen Ys is the big issue. It really is. Gen X is in the middle. You know, people in their 40s have a foot in both camps. They can kind of identify with both the boomers and both with the X, with the Xs even. Not so much till millennials. They've lost the ability. You know, millennials is the first generation that gets trophies just for turning up, uh, whereas... You know, <laughs> 
the boomer has only got a trophy if they actually did something and achieved something. So, <laughs> so that was the question again. I've lost the hell of thought here. It's such a huge topic. It really is how, how we can uh, facilitate better communication in the workplace yes. across generations. Well, well, there are plenty of books written on it now. Mm. Uh, certainly online you can do a course for, you know, for only a few bucks and probably get a freebie there as well on YouTube that will show you how to talk with a Gen Y person or if you're Gen Y, how to talk with a baby boomer to impress them, motivate them, get them on side and be able to work together because if you don't have that knowledge, you get a situation where baby, the baby women say that the, the exes and the millennials are just self-entitled, lazy, good for nothing, me, 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 me people, which isn't the case. But that's how it looks from a baby boomer's perspective. And the baby boomers just see uh, the, the, the Gen Ys and the millennials see the older people like you and I as, as just people who really are in the past, dinosaurs, uh, have no clue what's going on in real life and just don't get stuff, which isn't the case either. Uh, it's purely a perspective from one generation to the other. So if you are either a Gen Y millennial or a baby boomer, and even an ex, doing a course on the differences between you, how to communicate between the generations is a big, big deal because if you don't know how to do it, if you're a baby boomer and got younger staff, you're going to have nothing but chaos. Mm. You know you know what was so interesting? I was watching one of your YouTube videos when you were talking at Macquarie University uh-huh. and it was so interesting because you did this uh, well, obviously visual demonstration because you were standing in front of a huge crowd on just your hand gestures yeah, oh yes. and you've got your palms upwards or your palms downwards and how people would interpret the way that you're delivering your message, whether it was an order or whether it was a, hey, let's do it all together. And and I found that so powerful because uh, when, when I like to, you know, I, I like getting up and speaking as well and I talk about careers and career transition, but I tend to very naturally put my arms out but with my palms upwards. Uh-huh. And I never really thought about it. It's just something that I do. But I think it's because uh-huh. maybe I'm a woman, maybe because I'm a coach, maybe because I'm warm and fuzzy, maybe because I want you to like me, that sort of thing, that my palms just naturally go up. And it feels uncomfortable for me uh-huh. to put my palms downwards because it's too authoritarian uh-huh. for me. So so that that's really interesting. Why do you think it, it, there's such a big difference just whether you put your palms upwards or downwards? Well, there are more connections between the palms, the hand, and the brain than any other body part. Yeah. Uh, in fact, double as much as the next even for men too, can you believe it? More connections between the palm of the hands and the brain, which means that our, our hands have evolved clearly as fairly important parts of our evolution, important parts of communication. And monkeys and chimps have very much the same effect. So, for example, if a monkey or a chimp doesn't want to fight with a new guy, I want to show him that he's not threatening to hold his palms up like I'm doing now, so you can see the palms of my hand. That says, that says to you I have nothing held in my hand, nothing concealed, uh, my hands are by my side. You can, if you can see my hands as a primate, you'll feel this guy seems okay. Now put my hands behind my back, Jane, and put them in my pocket or close them or put them under my arms, put them out of sight. Suddenly you start saying to yourself, now something about this guy I've got to watch because I haven't shown you that I'm going to be open with you. And a monkey with his hands behind his back is not never to be trusted because he's got something back there. He's avoiding something. He's probably going to hit you with or attack you with. And that's why as humans that if you talk with your palms visible, they have to be up all the time. If you talk primarily with your palms visible, people find you easy on the eye, easy to relate to. And they say, oh, I found it really easy to talk with Jane because uh, she seems she's not threatening, she's not intimidating. When you say, what was it about? They try to articulate, they normally can't. One of the things is that the palms are visible. When the palms are down in the Donald Trump position, Donald Trump is a palm-down guy. Mm. When he shakes hands, his palm is on top of yours. And that becomes authoritative and almost intimidating for a lot of people. And palm downers feel comfortable because they're control, they're control people. They feel like I'm in control. Problem is that they're likely to be upsetting and cheesing up a lot of the people that they might want to communicate and get on side. And the bottom line is with any business, whatever you're in, if people buy you, if they feel comfortable with you, they relate to you, they feel like you understand them and that you're not intimidating, they're likely to buy you and they'll buy what goes with you, they'll go along with you. And having the palms visible as you talk goes a big way to creating that atmosphere. If you're talking with the palms down, they get a feeling that really you're telling me what I should be doing, you're pushing me around, you're a bit management. Now, people who are submissive don't mind that, but if you are quite strong yourself, you'll say there's something about this person really bugging me. And the, what's bugging you is the palm is down. And the worst of all the finger pointers, 
finger pointers that they it's like you produce a small stick that you start whacking that person on the head with they try to get them to see some scent. So if you catch yourself talking with your palm down or with your finger, just squeeze your finger against your thumb and open your hand, or just open your hands. And not only will you look different, be perceived differently, but you feel different. Because what we discovered is that because body language, as I said at the start, is an outward reflection of your emotions as opposed to what you're feeling. But if you intentionally make the gestures and keep using them, you'll feel the emotions that match it. In other words, if you keep talking with your palms up in an open, non-threatening position, you will feel open and non-threatening as well as people perceiving it that way. So you can manipulate your emotions, which is good. So if you're going to a scary interview where you're really frightened to death that you don't want to screw this up, you want to get it right, which means that you're likely to start showing a lack of confidence and defensive gestures, which is going to work against you. By intensely practicing for two minutes confidence signals, such as steepling, such as raising up and down the soles, if you get around a corner and do it on your own, after two minutes you feel like, hey, I've got this together. And importantly, when someone sees you doing that when you go in there, they'll say to themselves, Shane seems to be a pretty confident person. They can't articulate why, just, but what's happening, you have stage, you have stage made, you have choreographed your own entrance because subconsciously, whether we know it or not, people form up to 90% of their impression about a new person in under four minutes. Exactly. You screw that first form. In fact, most of us don't in 10 seconds, but you screw that first impact up, it's very hard to make a recovery. So really for job seekers going in for an interview and they're feeling a bit anxious because many of my clients are looking for a job yeah. and they're going in for interviews. So we talk about interview prep. In order to boost their confidence, you can do the steepling, steepling like this. Yeah. So you put all your fingers together and the fingers are separate. Right. It's almost like you're praying, but hold about chest level. Mm. Uh, the higher up you hold it, especially as a woman, the more arrogant you start to look. Oh. Uh, man, the, the more arrogant you look as a man, but the more arrogant as a woman you perceive, oh. which shows a sex bias in the minds of the viewer. So we found that people who claim they weren't sexist did this as well. That woman who held a steeple up under a chin, they said, oh, she's a bit bitchy, a bit arrogant, whereas a guy did, oh, he's obviously in charge. So we can highlight who really is sexist by these sort of behaviours. Mm. But by intensely practising confidence gestures like steepling, uh, and in effect you you convince yourself you've already got that job. This is just a formality. But you, this is what professional actors do when they take on a character. And if they're good at it, we give them an Oscar. And if you do that in business, of course, they'll probably give you five years in prison. So <laughs> <laughs> by intensely copying and using gestures and just standing on a corner and do it, and they're all in the book and you can see them on, the, on our YouTube channel, after two minutes, you'll feel like, hey, I've got this together. And importantly, when you start doing this in front of people, they say to themselves, you seem to have yourself together. So you have tricked yourself into confidence. And somebody said the other day, is that manipulation? Yes, it is manipulation. You're, the only reason you're showing lack of confidence is because you've grown up with those gestures saying, in this circumstance, I'm lacking confidence. And so you start feeling the emotions and showing it in your body language and people read it, particularly women. So by, by reversing it, by convincing yourself that you are cool, in charge, you've got this job, why would they ever possibly say no? And then taking and practising the gestures for two minutes to back it up, you walk in there with a lower blood pressure, a lower heart rate, you look like you're in control and you are, and people perceive you that way. I like that confidence gesture, the steepling, the fingers, holding it for two minutes, and that'll make you feel so much better. I'm going to do this every day. <laughs> well, see, when people, when people are talking with their hands, when they bring their hands back together, they'll normally put them in a lace fingers position or maybe they'll hold hands with themselves or cross their arms, all which give a negative impression by somebody who sees it. So to catch yourself doing any sort of hand holding or arm crossing, just uncross it and go into a steeple. Mm-hmm. And when you first do this, you'll, you'll, you'll feel like a real dork, Jane, when you first do this. <laughs> you think, oh, it's so uncomfortable. Everybody knows what I'm doing. They don't. It does two things. First, after two minutes, you start to feel like, hey, I've got this together. And importantly, the person who's watching this without awareness says, James seems to know what she's talking about. Mm, I think it make, makes it look as though you're thinking about something very deep and meaningful. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah well, now there's a number of theories as to why steepling has this feeling of confidence. Uh, we're not really sure what, with this gesture what it is, but we know if you do it, you'll get the result. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Alan, I could listen to you all day. There's so much to learn from you. Can and- you tell my wife that? <laughs> Selective hearing sometimes, yes. But but uh, so what I'm going to do, Alan, is in my show notes, I'm going to put all of the links to your your um, your website and your books and where to find Alan. But you tell us what's the best way to reach you if someone wanted to find out more about you. 
Well, just go on the web and put in my surname, P-E-A-S-E dot TV, which is television, mm-hmm. and that'll bring up our website, which has all their books, and, and have a look at our VIP weekend course. We do three of those a year here on the Sunshine Coast. You come and live in for the weekend, mm-hmm. and that's the one where you two could end up in Africa living in a tent. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> so when, when is your next um, retreat? Our next retreat is going to be in November. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the exact date, but it'll be on the web. And, and the results we get from these weekends are, are quite spectacular because uh, we open by saying that there's nothing's recorded, nothing's written down, and that allows people freedom to talk about anything they want in a non judgment environment. And we show them how to pull stuff out of their head and get it so the fact that whatever it is you want to do, and half the people don't know what they want to do. If you do know what you want to do, that's great. We get rid of the how and get you for the what. If you don't know what, we show you how to find the what. So you can move from wherever you are now to where you either want to go or where you could be going with your ability that maybe you're not doing. Fantastic. You have given us so much advice and I've taken up so much of your time, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Me too, Jane. Thank you. That's a cool <laughs> book. Having met Mr. Body Language and carried your book around for, for about 30 years. to speak to you. It's been such a pleasure. Pleasure to I hope to talk to you again soon. That'd be wonderful. If you enjoyed this podcast, look for Your Career Podcast on iTunes and leave a review. And for all the career management support you need to create your dream career, visit janejacksoncoach.com and join my Careers Academy for live career webinars, group coaching, one-on-one coaching support, as well as my online career development courses. Isn't it time you found your dream job? You've been listening to Jane Jackson Careers. Sign up to receive regular career advice at janejacksoncoach.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Your Career Podcast, I invite you to check out my career success program at thecareersacademy.online. The Career Success Program is the original program that uniquely provides 24-7 on-demand career support and fortnightly live career coaching sessions to keep you on track to reach your career goals. It is the essential resource for anyone who wants to manage their career effectively, make a career change and land the job they'll love. Whether you're in exploration mode or seeking a new career direction and need help to make it a reality, the Career Success Program is for you. Not only do you get access to my step-by-step roadmap to navigate your career crossroads, my extensive training library and exclusive members-only discounts and tools, you'll also become part of my supportive community of professionals who will help you with feedback, encouragement and advice. All this and more makes the Career Success Program the number one place to be for anyone looking to start, manage and grow their career. Check it out and join me at thecareersacademy.online.